0: That really doesn't play a role at all in my thinking. <clears throat> in my experience, com- uh, co- uh, governments, countries will take steps to protect their banking systems. Yep. I mean they will they will intervene to protect creditors, so that financial stress doesn't spread. You know, they can control the contagion, as they call it. Mm. And the reason why they do that is because they are already insuring uh, banking deposits. Yep. So. They, they basically, it's kind of like a forest fire scenario. You want to put the forest fire out before it spreads. So, I can imagine, just for example, let's look at uh, the extremely high number of triple B credits that have been issued in the last five years in the US.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, normally triple B, which is um, the lowest tranche of investment grade debt, normally triple B makes up 10 to 15 percent of investment grade issuance. In the last cycle, triple B made up over thirty percent of the of the investment grade issuance. and and what I can see is that therefore investment grade doesn't doesn't mean really what it used to. It, it has been degraded, right. and the, the peak in default rate in, in the triple B space was in two thousand and two, where you had one percent of triple B default. Now, investment grade debt is very important to understand because investment grade debt is what's owned by other leveraged financial institutions. It's kind of the building block, if you will, of uh, the entire uh, paper money system, and without investment grade credit, you you can't have the pyramiding effects that you get uh, through credit expansion. So it's very important to the government that the triple B credit uh, remain viable. So I can imagine, just as I'm throwing this out there, I can imagine a scenario where default rates in triple B reach four to six percent. Uh, so four to five to six times larger than they ever have been historically during uh, the next credit contraction, which I believe is actually underway. So, and let's say in 2018 or 2019, you see default rates on triple B of four or five percent. That would threaten the entire banking system uh, because that would be uh, something on the uh, magnitude of 200 or 300 billion dollars in credit defaults owned by leveraged financial institutions in the United States. In that kind of scenario, I can definitely imagine the government stepping in to save creditors in order to prevent the forest fire from spreading. But I don't believe that that will have any impact whatsoever on the shareholders. And if you'll, if you'll notice, you know, we're, we're suggesting hedging yourself in the equity of, uh, part of the of the uh, uh, you know of the uh, corporate structure, not not in the debt. So take for example the, ba- the, the you know the bailout of Bear Stearns, a leveraged financial institution had a bunch of mortgages that went bad, it failed. The government saved the creditors. They got uh, dollar-on-dollar for Bear Stearns' credit. The shareholders shareholders suffered a 97%, 98% wipeout. Mm -hmm. So, So even when the government intervenes in order to stop credit problems, it does not typically intervene to save shareholders. You could look at AIG, you could look at Fannie and Freddie, you could look at General Motors, you can look at all of the major corporations where the government stepped in to aid creditors and did nothing uh, for shareholders. No, uh, Peter, I'm completely apolitical. Yep. Um, I don't I don't vote. I don't generally engage in political conversations.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and the reason is that I find that um, it's completely irrelevant to, uh, to my work as an analyst. And that upsets people on both sides of the political aisle, but nevertheless, I believe it's the truth. Look, you've got one candidate who says he's going to take 39% of my wealth. I've got another candidate who says he's going to take 33% of my wealth. Right, (laughs) and it it boggles my mind that uh, the people out there, you know, who say, uh, "Oh, I'm for this candidate or that candidate," you know, there's there's not a there's not a there's not a hair's worth of difference between them. But man, you get a huge argument if you if you try to suggest that. Right. So, look, you've seen a huge rally in stocks in the U.S. since Trump was elected. Yep. And I and I and I and I'm and I'm almost positive that that fundamentally is because. Trump is promising something that we haven't seen in America in a very long time, hmm. which is an enormous fiscal expansion. So, you know, Trump is, is, is promising to reduce the impact of trade, meaning to reduce the disinflationary impact of the, the, the wonders of trade, and he's promising to up the size of government dramatically in our country. And what's so funny to me is that if, if a Democrat had promised these same exact things, he would have been called a communist and a traitor by most of the people who read my newsletter.
1: <laughs> but,
0: but just because it's a Republican who's saying it, that makes it okay. These, these policies will be devastating in the long term to the United States. There is no evidence whatsoever that government deficit spending, uh, when a government is already bankrupt, is beneficial to any economy. And if it were, then... Zimbabwe would be uh, Switzerland, and it's not.
1: Are there any particular themes or sectors that could be compelling with Trump as a president? Putting on your analyst cap as opposed to your political.
0: Yeah, and you've already seen it. I mean, I think you're going to see. Um, I think you're going to see base metals have an amazing run because the policies that Trump is promising would be decidedly inflationary. So you could see, you could have a lot, you could have a big move in gold, you could have a big move in silver, you could have, you, you've seen a big move already in copper and in steel, and I think that uh, those things will continue. Yeah, actually, uh, that's a great question. Um, my nine-year-old son came to me about six months ago, mm-hmm. and he said, hey, Dad, uh, how do you do a differential equation? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, was a, that wasn't really a question I was prepared to answer, especially for a nine-year-old. So we visited the Khan Academy, and I was very excited that their website has been so greatly improved. I don't know if you know the story, yes. but um, this, uh, this fellow, Khan, uh, was a successful venture capitalist, I believe. Mm-hmm. Made some money, and then he was raising his children and wanted to, do, wanted, wanted to do a better job educating them and wanted to integrate technology into learning. Mm-hmm. And so he started going into his, uh, his closet and making these short videos. And posting them and then lo and behold uh, Bill Gates found them and uh, Invested a bunch of money or donated a bunch of money to the Khan Academy Which is now like this really incredible online learning resource and what's great about it is it takes a Concept like algebra for example and it goes all the way from the very beginning of algebra tells you the history of how it was created mm. and then and then teaches you step-by-step step how to solve algebraic equations and uh, and, and it's really neat because each video is only about five minutes long and each video is only about one thing. So you you learn, you learn each little um, discrete portion and and you take a little test on it. And then once you've proven that, you know it, you can go on to the next video. So it's really been an amazing tool. And for children that are uh, extremely bright, um, it's, it's, it's a wonderful resource for parents because, I mean, my, my child spent three hours on Saturday afternoon learning algebra, and I don't know how he could have done that without the Khan Academy. Yeah, you know, I feel the same way about that as I do about uh, religion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my son goes to a uh, private school, St. Paul's, that was founded a long time ago by the Episcopal Church. Mm-hmm. And so there is still a veneer of uh, religious doctrine that is uh, he's taught. And I kind of feel like uh, you know, learning how economics really works, and learning what's really behind religion, and learning what's really behind the economics that you're taught is all sort of like learning about Santa Claus. It's all something that you eventually figured out for yourself. <laughs> so uh, I'm not really worried about um, about the uh, Keynesian economics or the uh, big government history he's picking up from Khan Academy. He will he will be wise enough to see through those. Uh, Um, uh, that indoctrination, uh, when he's mature enough to understand it. Sure. I mean, human beings have a tremendous emotional response to fear. Tremendous. Uh, I know this as a marketer. And the biggest fear that every human being has is death. And uh, people go to great lengths to find some comfort from this fear. And they have, through all of history, and I'm sure they'll continue to do so. But I'm telling you, it's very interesting that most marketers who play upon the weak, uh, and, and their fears are, are, are despised in society. But uh, for some reason, we allow certain people who play on those exact same emotions with the exact same kind of bullshit, we, we allow them to not only uh, take enormous amounts of our wealth, we allow them to molest our children, uh, we allow them to be free of uh, uh, many different social constraints. Uh, somehow we, uh, you know, some people even allow them uh, to uh, lead them to suicide. I mean, there's all kinds of Different varieties of these these uh, marketing uh, um, promises and pitches, but it's all just total nonsense. Americans don't know anything about their own government, and they don't have any idea how much our founding fathers despised and feared democracy. And, and uh, America, I, America was never meant to be a democracy, and that we have become almost a democracy is terrifying.
1: Right, and I, I'd imagine. Do you think that you could have the idea of like a free market state? Uh, in correspondence with the Republic. I, I guess that's the way that it could work in, in that idea.
0: I, I understand what you're saying and uh, I think that ultimately though those efforts would all fail because whoever who, the, person, the person who is willing to commit the most amount of violence is ultimately going to be the person or the persons who are in charge of the government. So you could you, you could you could try to establish a market-based government, and there are many places where you have something very similar mm. um, I would point I would point to Singapore and Hong Kong as notable examples of places where the government is As um, is, is run in a market-based way, so for example, I mean Singapore is a, a fantastic example of this right they have yeah. peak load pricing on all of their all of their highways they there, there is nothing in Singapore that is free. There is, there is not a single penny of welfare, you know. So it's a very market-driven government. But, but the reality is that Singapore wouldn't exist without the protection of the United States military. Mm-hmm. And, and if the United States government did not like the way that Singapore is being run, Singapore would change overnight. Mm-hmm. So again, I think that your, I think that uh, Doug's ideas and 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 this idea that. You could uh, organize a government using the same processes that organize markets is deeply flawed because it, it ignores the elephant in the room, which is whoever is willing to commit the most violence is the person who will eventually be in charge of the government.
1: Hmm. All right, Porter, let's try to end this off by asking you, what are like the top five books that anyone should read if they want to be as brilliant as you are?
0: Oh, please. Come on, Peter. <laughs> I'm far brilliant. Um, you know, Peter, that's a really great question. And off the top of my head, I will give you an answer. Sure. <laughs> but um, but let me say something before. Is a preference. Okay. A preference to my answer, which is, I was speaking with Jim Grant last week. I don't know if you read Grant's Street Observer, but it's a it's a beautiful newsletter. Okay. And he's he's a brilliant guy. And I and I um, I asked him, you know, how did you end up as a newsletter writer? And he said, well, you know, I was always a bookworm, and uh, and I, I that answer resonated with me. So. Uh, I don't know why, but from the time I was about five or six years old, I read constantly. I wasn't interested in television, and I, I'm I'm no athlete, so I spent a lot of time reading. I can remember skipping school to read books because I was so engaged in them I didn't want to be parted from them. Right. And my parents, <clears throat> my parents, God bless them, they agreed that they would buy me any book I wanted. So I would go to the bookstore every week, and I would buy five or ten books. Mm-hmm. And I would read them and read them and read them. So my number one answer to this question is: <clears throat> it truly doesn't matter what you're reading. It just matters that you're reading. And if you want to get <laughs> if you want to get a, if you want to get ahead in life, turn off the television, put down the Facebook, spend four or five hours a day reading. And again, it doesn't matter what you read. It just matters that you read. So for my book list, I would. Um, I would tell you, that I would start with all of the letters of Warren Buffett. Okay. I think that uh, he's not only a great financial sage, I think he is an extremely wise man. Right. And he talks over, you know, his letters. Uh, you can get copies of the ones back to the mid 1950s. Right. So he, his, he's been writing an annual letter about the affairs of the markets in the United States for over 50 years. Mm. And if you, if you read those letters, and I've probably, I'm no exaggeration, I've probably read them be- cover to cover close to 50 times. Right. If you. Read those letters, you will be imparted with a tremendous amount of wisdom.
1: Now, when you say the letters, Porter, are you also including the ones um, in his partnership as well? Like, Or or are you talking strictly about Berkshire Hathaway?
0: No, I'm talking about the partner letters that go back to the mid-1950s, and then he started writing the Berkshire letters, I believe, in about
1: 1965. Okay, so everything you're saying, basically. Yeah, I've read them
0: all. And by the way, the earlier ones... The earlier ones are not nearly as good as the later ones. If you yeah. wanted to lighten the load, you could start with 1983 and go from there, and you'd get 97% of what I'm talking about. Right. The other interesting letter he wrote that I, I, I got a copy of, um, I'm happy to send you a copy of it, Peter, if you want to post it somewhere. He wrote a letter to Catherine Graham, a private letter to Catherine Graham in the mid-1970s, shortly after he bought his position in the Washington Post.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: it's an absolutely brilliant exposition, of the challenge of pension fund managers, and and a great uh, explanation of why Buffett preferred to in, to invest in the stock market uh, as opposed to simply buying whole companies. And as you know, that changed over time as whole companies began to trade at a discount right. uh, relative to stocks. So his his, his strategy has changed. But the point is, just it's a wonderful if you didn't if you don't understand why people invest in the stock market at all, this letter really explains it. And he's He's speaking to a very educated, wealthy woman who has never, ever known anything or done anything in the stock market. Well, so again, fantastic. it's just—it's a, a wonderful way of, of educating yourself. So all the letters of uh, Warren Buffett would be tops on my list. Okay, what else? <clears throat> you, got, you got to share with us a few more, Porter. Uh, I would tell you uh, to pick up a great to pick up a great summary of the Bible. Actually, basically, between the Bible and Shakespeare, every single great story is told. And uh, as a writer, you should know all of the plots. And if you read Shakespeare and you've read the Bible, then you have them all. Uh, and you can use them as you will. And I use stories from the Bible all the time uh, to illustrate uh, points because, like I said, they're all there. Every metaphor you'd ever want to make is in the Bible. And there's, a, of course, a reason why the Bible is probably the most printed book in history. I, I would probably get into an argument with someone who would say it's the Quran or the, the – um, what's the Jewish book? The, the Talmud? But, uh, <laughs> yes we're We're splitting hairs about that. The point is that um, much of uh, much of human wisdom has been distilled into that book, and you should definitely have a very good understanding of it. Mm. Uh, what's next? Uh, what can I tell you next? Oh, very simply. Um, uh, pretty much anything by Bastiat is a very important primer to life. Okay. So Bastiat wrote, um, uh, I would say he wrote two great works. He wrote a lot. He was a um, a, a French, Politician in the mid 1800s, and at the time it was a very volatile period in French politics. And he wrote these great books about the proper role of uh, the government in society. And one is called uh, The Law, and it's a very short book. It's probably only 30 or 40 pages long. Mm -hmm. And the premise of it's quite beautiful. Do you know the book?
1: No, I don't. This is post French Revolution, right? Yes, it is. Okay. No, I'm not familiar.
0: So Bastiat's concept was really wonderful. It was just that the proper role of government is to be part of a society, not to dominate the society. Mm. And so he said said that the government ought not to be allowed to do anything that the citizens cannot do. And it's a a very, it might sound like a little bit of a silly idea, but you have to read it to understand what he's talking about. It's great. And he also wrote another book just about economics called uh, Economic uh, Sophisms. And it's a, a wonderful explanation of uh, economic fallacies. So it was Bastiat, by the way, who came up with the metaphor of the broken window. If you've ever had a good economics class, you know that while you can, while breaking a window might stimulate economic activity, it does not build wealth.
1: Hmm. And he
0: he goes through a lot. He goes through a wonderful explanation of why trade is beneficial. He talks about the Corn Laws in England and the negative re- re- repercussions of barriers to trade. So Bastiat is a, a, a fantastic read, and it'll give you all the basics of good government and good economics.